Psalm 8. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honour. You made them rulers over the works of your hands and put everything under their feet. All flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swims the path of the ocean, path of the seas. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And this is the word of the Lord. Thank you. There are not that many of us here today, and Kevin said word had got around that he was leading today, so some folks stayed at home. But Kevin, I don't think it was that. Uh, I think it was more that they realized there was another psalm. But I want you to know that this psalm is very, very different, and you would have noticed already from the psalms we have looked at. The psalms 5 and 6 and 7, those psalms of David that had rather dark themes, if you like, themes about God's judgment themes about God's wrath and anger and man's repentance. But today we've got something totally, totally different. One of the most beautiful expressions in all of Scripture of man's praise for God, a wonderful expression. It's a wonderful psalm. To me, it's an unsurpassed example of what a hymn or a song of praise ought to be like. It celebrates the glory and, and the grace of God It rehearses who he is and and what he has done for us. And it relates us and our world to him. And it does it with a marvelous economy of words. It's a very short psalm. And yet it's it's done in a spirit that is mingled with joy and and great awe. And I I can almost imagine David standing one evening and maybe he's a young man and maybe he's looking up from tending his flocks and he's looking at the heavens Or maybe he's a king already and he's standing on his balcony and in a moment of quiet he he observes the universe around him. And he's in total awe of what he sees. Without the knowledge that we have today of the sheer size of it all, he is yet in tremendous awe and he he says, this is is from God, Lord our God, Jehovah our Lord, this is from you. And in this psalm, he opens up his heart to us a little bit. And he tells us three things about God's relationship to us that I think are really encouraging and really important for us here this morning. He starts off by telling us that God indeed created us. And I think it's important to remind ourselves of that. He goes on from there to say that God actually cares for us as well. And it's always good to remind ourselves of that. And finally, he says even more than that, God is going to crown us. There's going to be a reward. There's going to be a crown that is going to be given. And we're going to explore that a little bit this morning. So if you'd like to have that psalm in front of you, let's have a look at the first few verses where it talks about God's creation of the universe. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. 
Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man, what is mankind, that you are mindful of them? This God of creation, this God that Joseph calls Yahweh, the great I am that I am, the great Lord, yet he sees this Lord, this God, is near and is close to him. I love the way he says, it is, you've, you've set your glory in the heavens, and then if some of the translations actually take the full stop away there, and so it reads like this, you have set your glory in the heavens through the praise of children and infants. What a wonderful paradox that is. It's a wonderful description of how God is there, and yet he's here. It's a wonderful description of what the theologians call his transcendence, which means he's way above, and yet his imminence, which means he's close. He's as close as anyone can get. It's remarkable, and it's just wonderful. And David captures this so beautifully in those first few verses. And before we get to the the picture of God creating us, you and I as human beings, let's just remind ourselves just for a moment this morning how God has created the entire universe. He is indeed the creator of the universe. The heavens and everything else are the work of his fingers, his hands. And from Genesis 1 verse 1 it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And since the beginning of time, Jews and Christians and many, many others have believed this without any doubt. They've believed this to be true. In fact, across all religions, all philosophies, and indeed all sciences, it was universally believed that this universe was created by divine agency until about 200 years ago. Until about 200 years ago, up until the time of Isaac Newton, himself a great, cre- a great Christian and believer in God, until that time we believed that this was God's doing. And then came a time ironically known as the Enlightenment, when men and women apparently came of age, when we started to rid ourselves of what we saw to be restraints and old wives' tales and myths. And for the first time, Man became modern. And now any idea of a God who has any claim on us, any idea of a God who is behind all of this, has to be banished and killed off. And we have to find a new way to explain how the universe came into being and how it got here. And so began this myriad of modern explanations that we refer to as naturalism or evolutionism or humanism, whatever you want to call them. It appears with the enlightenment, man got all of a sudden cleverer. I'm not sure he got any wiser. But I need to share with you this morning, as my fellow believers, that you don't need to be taken in by that modern age. You are not in any way whatsoever committing intellectual suicide to believe that God created the heavens and the earth. I really, really believe that. And you're not alone. Even the great Albert Einstein, who himself was a a non-practicing Jew, and certainly his vision of God was not our vision of God, 
but he could not believe that the universe was not created by some divine being. And in fact, surveys have been done over the last two to three years that suggest men of science, men and women of science, and of geology and biology and anthropology, in all of the great Western universities, almost 50% believe in God. I was surprised by that. I thought it was far less. It's almost 50%. You're not alone if you believe that God created the heavens and the earth. Read the works of some of the great Christian writers today who will share with you how they, from their science and from their beliefs, really still believe very solidly, as I do, that this place, this wonderful place that we have, was created by God. Now, I I grant you, not all of them believe necessarily that it was created exactly 6,000 years ago. Not all of them believe that it was created necessarily in six 24-hour days. There are different views of how that happens. Many, many, many do believe that it was created in six 24-hour days. But I believe, and I want to share this with you, I believe strongly that it is more credible to believe that God made the universe than to believe it came about any other way. I strongly believe that. To believe that this universe, this world of ours, came about purely as a product of a long time and a lot of chance hardly to me seems credible. Hardly seems credible. To believe that this exquisitely fine-tuned universe came about by chance is hard to believe. To believe that this place that continues to surprise us day by day with its wonderful design and perfection all came about by chance to me is incredible. And please, please, if this is an area that you're struggling with, if you're finding it hard to really believe and commit yourself to this belief that God has created everything we see, then I suggest you do two things. Number one, make it a very, very special cause for prayer. Get on your knees and pray that God would give you the trust and the faith in Him to believe what His Word says, and then begin to answer the questions. Please do that. And secondly, if it remains a real issue for you, then please come and talk. Please come and talk to us. Let us sit down and share with you how we believe, we can believe, we can believe in this day and age that this place, this wonderful universe was created by God. One of the most wonderful of all English poets is the lovely Elizabeth Barrett Browning, the wife of the wonderful Robert Browning. And she says, earth's crammed with heaven, and every common bush afire with God. But only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest sit round it and pluck blackberries and daub their natural faces unawares. We live in a universe created by a caring, wonderful, clever, God. But God didn't just create the universe. I believe that he created you and me. Let's talk about that for a moment. What is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. 
I believe God wants all men, all over, all men and women everywhere to know that he's created them in his own image. We're not only created, but we're created in his image. But today you are considered to be out of step if you believe that by so many. I shudder sometimes when I think of what's being taught in, in, in classrooms, in schools. The kids are not given the chance to say, hold on a second, wait a minute. It's not what I believe. And very often our kids are not equipped to have that argument anyway. You see, if you take God out of the picture, if you take God away as being our creator, what are you left with? Well, I'll tell you what you're left with. And this is what you will be told by modern thinking. We are, as the rest of creation, we are merely the product of a long time and accident and chance. We are at the end, or maybe even not at the end, of a billion-year evolutionary process, a path. And within that path, there is no external design, and there is certainly no purpose. We therefore cannot, through mere evolution, have any sense of right or wrong. No morality, no sense of anything at all such as love, hate, hope, or despair. We have no soul, we have no spirit, we have no purpose in life, we have no meaning, and no reason to be here. Dawkins himself says, and I'm quoting from him, this is what he says, and he is the spokesman for so much of this. He says, the universe has precisely the properties we should expect. Listen to what he says. There is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. That's easy to say that, but do you know anybody who can live according to that? One of the harshest things you can say to an atheist and I do it very, very rarely, but only when I'm at the very end of my tether and the argument has gone as far as it has gone, and I say it with all the gentleness in my heart. I say then, well, when you get home this evening and your wife said she loves you, you're going to look her in the face and you say, I don't understand love. I don't know love. Because you can't. If you're not created by God, you're, you're the end of a piece of chance time evolution. You don't know, love doesn't exist. It can't. It can't exist. Where did it come from? And you can't make statements about this is right and this is wrong. You can't deny that these horrific things that are happening in the world are wrong. You can't do that because there is no morality. That's what they say. I tell you, brothers and sisters here today, you can't live like that. And it's one of the reasons why I believe there's so much loneliness, so much disillusionment in the world today. People have forgotten that they are created by God. And because they're created by God, they're created in His image. And because they're in His image, what do they have? A real sense of right and wrong. A real knowledge of love. And a real knowledge of all those things that make us truly human. We can live by that, but we cannot believe 
We cannot live if all we are is the latest animal in the chain. Cannot live like that, and that's why it's so hard sometimes. I'll share with you just a, a brief story of uh, Ravi Zacharias, the great Indian-born Canadian apologist, tells of a, a debate on a university campus, and the story of the, the topic of the debate is what does it really mean to be human? And he was debating on the one side, the side of the, the believers, believers in God, the Christians, alongside with a man called Dr. Francis Collins, one of the most famous scientists in America, the uh, founder of the Human Genome project, uh, project appointed by Barack Obama to be head of the National Institutes of Health, one of the finest physical scientists in America. They were arguing on the one side, and then they had two other scientists arguing the other side, that man has got nothing to do with creation, and so on and so on. And the debate proceeded. One speaker, then the other, and one speaker, then the other. And the audience was swayed and from the one to the other, and the one to the other. And at the very end, the last person to speak, the, the opportunity was given to Dr. Collins. And he said, all I've got to do to close my argument is to show you two slides. And the first slide he put up, and I want you to try to imagine it, was a slide of the rose window at Yorkminster Cathedral. Can you imagine what that would look like? The sun shining through it. And you could hear this sense of wow in the audience as they looked at that. This remarkable piece of artwork. This remarkable stained glass window. And then he put up another slide. And this slide was even more remarkable in its symmetry, in its color, in its detail, in its design. And people looked at it, and some of them knew what it was, but some didn't. So he said, I'll tell you what that is. That's a simple slice of human DNA. And then he reached into the wings, and he picked up a guitar. And he said, come, let's sing together. And he led them in the singing of How Great Thou Art. We're going to sing that hymn shortly. You can deny all the design, but, and you can deny all the purpose, but as long as you like, but you can't live with that. You and I know it's true. And in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, I don't know what page it's on, but it's quite near the beginning, I can tell you that. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, we see these immortal words of the exact time when you and I, as a species, were created. The very beginnings of the creation of our species. Notice that it happens in a specific moment in time. We don't know when that moment was exactly, but it's a specific moment. It's not just the end of a process. It's a specific moment. And in verse 26, God said, and whenever I read these words, I kind of I find them hard to read because I... More than most passages of the Bible, it, it feels like holy ground to me. This is the beginning of me. God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground, then God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. And if any verses deserve to be 
memorized. These are them, you know. This is holy ground. This is description of the very moment our first ancestor came into being, whenever that was. In Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7, then the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the earth and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. And then forward to verse 18 to 25. We rejoice in the glory of these words. And the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock and all the birds in the sky and the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made woman from the rib that he had taken from the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And that is why man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. You won't hear that in a biology classroom today, I tell you. You won't hear that in a classroom on creation or the beginnings of, of the universe and the beginnings of mankind. But it's some of the most staggering, most informative, most beautiful and most humbling of all of Scripture. And we stand by it proudly today as the absolute truth about the origin of our species. God created us. But let's, let's, let's move on. We, we know from this psalm that he not only created us, and I hope you, hope you can live in that and experience that this morning for what it is, but he cares for us. Let's have a look at this a bit further. When I consider your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them and human beings that you care for them? So out of the whole array of all creation, from the starry heavens to the creatures in the bottom of the sea, as we talk about in verse 8, we are the only ones who can ask this question. What is man? What is mankind that you are mindful of them? And any man or woman or child can look at this whole gamut of creation and say it comes from God and it belongs to God. And we can not only acknowledge him as our creator, but we can have conversation with him. And we can do that because that's what he wants, because he cares. I'm going to make no apology at all for quoting another large piece of scripture to you, because I think it's really important. On page 726 this time, you'll find Isaiah on a similar theme. God cares for us. He not only created us, but he intimately cares for us. He gives us his attention. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 26. 
verse 26, page 726. Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name. Because of his great power and his mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, my cause is disregarded by God? Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired and weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. This is what creation is really all about. It's not about God's remoteness in the heavens, but his fine attention to the detail of our lives. This is not a meaningless, an empty universe. It is about a home that has been created especially for God's people. That's what it is. It has no meaning apart from that. Going on in Isaiah chapter 45 and verse 18, just one or two verses. 45 verse 18. For this is what the Lord says, he who created the heavens. For he is God. He who fashioned and made the earth, he founded it. And listen to this. He did not create it to be empty, but formed it to be inhabited. I who set the heavens in place, who laid the foundations of the earth, who says to Zion, you are my people. He cares. He really cares. Hallelujah. And what we know today about the sheer size of the universe, things that David could only imagine, in no way diminishes our stature. It no way diminishes our significance. Yeah, you're told and I'm told that we're just tiny specks, and that may be true, but boy, are we precious specks to God. He cares. What is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? And finally, he created us, he cares for us, but what else is there? Look at verse 5 of Psalm 8. You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. And the words here for, uh, back in verse 4, for mankind and humankind, or as it says in the earlier versions, what is man or what is the son of man? These are words that imply fragility, lack of strength, feebleness, weakness. But we see something so much more here. We are created, first of all, a little lower than the angels, whatever that means. We need to explore that briefly. And secondly, we are crowned with glory and honor. What can that possibly mean? So first of all, you've made them a little lower than the angels. It's a bit of a troublesome verse for, us, for some. Uh, in fact, this verse is 
is quoted completely in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 8 and 9. It's taken out of this psalm and put there. The writer of Hebrews doesn't apply it to you and I on that occasion. Who does he apply it to? He applies it to Jesus. And he says, for a little, for a little while, Jesus himself was, was made lower than the angels, a little lower than the angels. The only problem with this is that sometimes it's difficult to understand what does it mean to be a little bit lower than the angels? Does that mean um, we're only for a little while uh, in a lower state than the angels? Could be. Does it mean we're created lower than the angels because we're created after the angels? That would appear to be true. Does it mean we're created lower than the angels because we, we live here and not up there? That could be true. Does it mean we created a little bit lower than the angels because we don't necessarily have the powers that they have, possibly. But there's a real sense in which we are created far higher than the angels. The angels are never going to be crowned with glory and honor. The angels are never going to be called the family of God, the friends of God, the children of God. They're never going to be adopted into his family. And is it... Is it right to understand Jesus as being, for a time, a little lower than the angels? Well, if we accept it means simply for a little while lower than the angels, I can, I can live with that. But there's another way this verse could be looked at, and I'm not saying it's the right way. And it's that word angels. You know, there's some words in the Bible that have a whole bunch of meanings. And that word, and I had to look this up and I had to remind myself of it several times. It didn't seem right, but it is the right word. It's the word Elohim. And when you see God created the heavens and the earth, that word God is what? Elohim. So the word Elohim, which is here translated angels, in the previous NIV was translated heavenly beings, which is pretty much the same thing, but it could also be translated gods or God. And there's some who say, and I can understand this as well, that although we are created very different from God, He is there, He is big. His ways are not our ways. We can never be like Him. But there's a sense in which He has made us quite a lot like Him. Lower, but a lot like Him. We have wonderful attributes that He has of of being able to love, being able to sense right and wrong, being able to care, being able to do so many things that nothing else in creation can do. And I get a sense that when you you see Christ in Philippians chapter 2, when Paul writes about how Christ humbled himself, he says of Christ being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to use for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. So, whether it's angels or whether it's God, the meaning is the same. Christ, for a time, took on the humility of a man and of a servant. And you and I are created by God in a very, very special way. Something quite unique. We're not the angels. For a time we may be lower than them, but we will be crowned above them. And then he goes on in verse 6. You made them rulers. This is about Adam and Eve, remember? You made them rulers over the work of your hands and put everything under their feet. 
all the flocks and herds and animals of the wild, all the birds in the sky, the fish in the sea, and the, swim, the, the fish that swim in the depths of the ocean. So, what is he saying here? He's saying, well, way back when Adam and Eve were created, they were crowned and they were made co-regents, co-rulers of creation at the time. He gave them dominion is the word that's used. Dominion is a very, very strong word. It's one of the strongest words to express this whole idea of power that there is in the scriptures. He gave them dominion over the land and over the creatures of the land. Adam was given the responsibility of naming those creatures, caring for them and for the land. And that's our legacy as well. But something's gone wrong. Something's gone wrong. By the end of Genesis chapter 3, by the time you get to the end of Genesis 3, the story has changed. Adam and Eve have, in a way, it appears, lost their crowns. And their dominion over the planet now becomes, it comes with a cost. Working the land from now on is going to be hard and a sweaty business. Giving birth to children is going to be a very, very painful experience. And yet, and yet you and I who crown Christ as king of our own lives, we are yet today, I believe very strongly, co-regents, crowned with him in a very special relationship to this planet. And yet, even though we are co-rulers with him, we, we sometimes find ourselves living a little bit like slaves and servants, not as kings or queens. Sin reigns in our world, and it has since our first parents sinned, and death reigns. But what is so wonderful? To me, this is the heart of the gospel, and I find the gospel right here in this song. Jesus has regained the dominion for us, and we share in that dominion now in a small way. And one day we'll share fully in that joyous dominion in the kingdom to come. And right now, while sin has or should not have any dominion over us, we retain that God-given responsibility to care for his creation. And it is the dominion of care, not a dominion of exploitation or of rape. And I say this to you on this beautiful, beautiful Sunday morning. Yesterday, Denise and I were with friends and we were sitting in a beautiful garden full of wonderful flowers. Just To me, just such a sign of, of God's wonderful creation. Just before that, we had a round of golf. You know the best thing about golf is you get to walk in the creation. Can't do that on a tennis court, for goodness sake. Play golf. <laughs> wonderful. We didn't do it again, my love, sometime this weekend. We have... We've been given this creation and we've been appointed co-regents of it. We've been crowned. And we as Christians, we stand co-accused whenever we do anything less than show total honor and respect for God's creation. Some have said that Christians can sometimes get so heavenly minded that they're of no earthly good. And that's a frightening accusation. I believe we should be at the forefront, not on the sidelines, 
of environmental and animal care. It remains our God-given responsibility. So let's summarize, then we're done. God the Father created us, created us to be kings, queens, co-regents, co-rulers with him. But from the disobedience of our first fathers, we've been robbed of our crowns. And then God in Christ came to earth and redeemed us to be kings once again. And today, even today, the Holy Spirit is here to empower us to reign in life by one Christ Jesus, Romans chapter 5. And when you and I crown Jesus as Lord of our lives, we become sovereigns with him. Sovereigns no longer slaves. Victors no longer victims. And then we cry out with David as he does in the last verse of the psalm, which is exactly the same as the first verse of the psalm, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth.